Well, take your Bibles and join me in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, this morning, church family. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and uh, grab that note page from your bulletin if you wouldn't mind. Now, in my mind's eye, I imagine that it was a day very much like today when Jesus and his disciples long ago gathered under the big blue with a large crowd and did church on the side of a mountain, just like we're doing it out here at Herky Creek today. The Holy Spirit, through the gospel writers, has preserved that church service that Jesus preached at on the side of a mountain, has preserved that service for us in the gospels. It's come to be known to us as the Sermon on the Mount. With perhaps several thousand on a grassy hillside, Jesus taught the people how to do life with God. The last thing Jesus did at that special under the big blue gathering was tell a story about a wise man and a foolish man. Jesus said that both built houses. The foolish man built his house on sandy ground while the wise man built his house on solid rock. A terrific storm descended on the houses. The foolish man's house creaked and cracked and then crumbled and collapsed into a pile of rubble. The wise man's house stood sound and solid and unmoved, no matter how hard the storm blew. Jesus' impossible-to-miss challenge to the congregation that day on the hillside was, Build your life on the truth that I give you, and your life will stand up for eternity. Church family, over the last couple of mornings, we have been thinking about a house built of those truths. We've called it the true gospel house, the salvation house. And there is a simple picture of it there on your note page. The true gospel house rests on the foundation of Holy Scripture alone. Everything that we believe, everything that we obey, everything that we embrace and do and hold most dear concerning our relationship with God rests on the rock of the Bible alone. And then upon this foundation are three massive pillars that declare how sinners, which is what we all are, how sinners are saved from an eternity of separation from holy God because of sin. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Nothing added. Jesus plus nothing equals eternal life with God. And then when the foundation of Scripture alone is acknowledged and firmly in place and the three essential pillars of the true gospel are immovably anchored into this foundation and believed, well then the roof over the gospel house, pointing only and forever upward, is the truth that our salvation is ultimately for God's glory alone. And the question that we ask today is, do you live in this house? Do you live in the true gospel house? When we say amen, yes, we do. Now, church family, what we've been remembering here in this month of October is that 500 years ago, this salvation house, the true gospel house, was in ruins. It was a pile of rubble, and its glorious truth was not able to save anyone. For more than a thousand years prior to the year 1500 in Europe, the Latin Church, the Roman Catholic Church, had controlled every aspect of the lives of the people, especially their spiritual lives. The Latin Church vigorously taught and defended two lies 
that held sway over everybody. First, the church has equal authority to Scripture, to the Bible. If the church's leaders say it, it's as if the Bible said it. That was the first lie. The second lie was, yes, you need to believe in Jesus to be saved, but he's not enough. You must do many other things yourself to merit heaven. The Bible alone isn't your source for truth, and Jesus alone can't save you. And of course, as we've been learning, in Europe in 1500, this true gospel house was in ruins because of these two lies. But God would not allow that to continue. Thanks to Martin Luther, who on October 31st, 1517, challenged the Latin church and then was joined by many other brave reformers as they came to be known, the true gospel house, which had been ruined and lost, was rescued and rebuilt. The Great Reformation more or less began in October 1517, and for 500 years it's been impacting the world. Indeed, we are gathered here today as a direct result of what the Reformation accomplished. Because what emerged from the Reformation are what we refer to today as the five solas. Sola, it's the Latin word for alone. And what this extraordinary period of history did, why it is so important and why we are remembering it now, is because it gave back to the Western world, which you and I are a part of, the five absolutely essential non-negotiable truths of biblical salvation doctrine. And they are known as the five solas of the true gospel. You see them there on your note page. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, Grace alone. Sola Fide, Faith alone. Solus Christus, Through Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, For God's glory alone. The five solas, the five alones of true salvation. Each week here in October, we are zeroing in on one of the solas, recalling its essential importance and celebrating its place in each of our own salvation stories. We have affirmed sola scriptura and sola gratia. Today we take up sola fide, faith alone, as one more part of what it means to be in a saved relationship with the God who loves us and made us for himself. Now, your Bible is open to Galatians chapter 2. And the reason I've asked you to join me here is because Europe in the 16th century was not the first time that the true gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done for us was in danger of being distorted and lost. It nearly happened in the first century, too. The Apostle Paul, under direct instruction from Jesus himself, had taken the salvation house truth to non-Jewish peoples living in Galatia, or what is modern-day Turkey. The year is about 50 A.D. He gives them the sola gospel, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Jesus plus nothing else equals everything that matters. It equals salvation. But within a year, false teachers come in behind Paul and these churches that he had planted and and they say, no, it's not faith in Jesus alone that saves. It is Jesus plus Jewish traditions and customs, observing the, Mose the law of Moses. That's what saves you. Jesus plus other stuff you do 
positions you to find merit in God's eyes. Paul learns of this and immediately drafts this letter of Galatians and sends it off to be circulated to all these Jesus-centered churches of Galatia that he had planted. In one verse, which most Bible teachers and scholars consider to be the rock on which the entire letter of Galatians rests, and I would very much agree with that, Paul champions the true gospel in one verse. If we could have only one scrap of this ancient parchment of Galatians, this is the part we would want. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Do you suppose we could read it aloud together off your note page? At the very bottom on the front of your note page, it goes like this. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. There's not one of us sitting here right now, not one in the world who does not need to know the truth of Galatians 2.16. This is the true gospel in a single verse. Now, you may have already picked up on this just from reading right now, but, but for Paul, there are in verse 16... Two truths about the gospel that he wants to make sure his friends get. Two truths that the Holy Spirit wants us to get too. The first, if we flip that note, note page over, is this. Every sinner's greatest need is to be justified before a holy God. That is my greatest need and it is your greatest need too. You might never have thought to articulate your greatest need in this life quite like this, but it is the truth. Our greatest need is to be justified. The Holy Spirit says through Paul, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The word appears three times in this one in this one verse. And that should tell us that this is really important. It's critical to our understanding of what it means to be truly saved, that we understand this word justified. I will confidently proclaim, because Scripture does here, that there is no more glorious declaration that could ever fall on any sinner's ears, yours or mine, than the words from God, you, dear one, stand justified before me. If we could hear nothing else from God, this is the one thing we would want to hear. This was never more true than it was when the word justification came to be understood by a dutiful, rule-keeping monk named Martin Luther living in Germany in the 1500s. Luther was desperately trying because it was what the Latin church had taught him, desperately trying to win the approval of God and acceptance into his presence by being as good as he could possibly be. And when he wasn't doing good works, he'd be inflicting harm on himself. 
whipping himself, clap, climbing flights of stone stairs on hands and knees until they bled, hoping to show God how sorry he was for the sin in his life. But none of his self-efforts ever brought peace to his soul. And they never could. Because no one is saved by being good or doing good works or avoiding the bad stuff. As Luther read the Galatian letter and the book of Romans, he, he kept coming upon verses that spoke of being justified before God on the basis of nothing but the merits of what Jesus did for the sinner at the cross and the sinner's simple faith in Jesus' work alone. No mention of good deeds, fastidious performance, self-effort, or self-harm. Just faith alone in what Jesus had already done for the sinner in paying their sin debt for them and then being declared justified before God. By the light of a candle in a German monastery, God opened the eyes of understanding to Martin Luther and the Great Reformation was born. The works-based religion of the Latin church would be turned upside down by justification through faith alone, truth. And today, you and I are living extensions of what God showed Luther on the pages of Scripture, what he discovered in this one verse, verse 16. So what exactly is this thing that Paul writes about here called justification? Well, on your note page, check out the rather full paragraph. I admit that, although I know you can read as well, allow me to read it for us. What is justification? Well, it is this. It is an instantaneous legal action taken by holy God the moment that true faith in Jesus is expressed in a sinner's life. On the basis of the death of sinless Jesus, who dies on a cross in the sinner's place, God declares the believing sinner forgiven. Justified means not guilty and fully righteous. God legally sets Jesus' sinless, righteous life over the sinner's guilty sin record. So that when God looks at the sinner, he sees only the righteousness of his son. Because a sinner's justification rests 100% on the merits of what Jesus has done and 0% on what the sinner does or does not do. There is no boasting by the sinner, but only eternal gratitude to God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Now that is a rather full paragraph, but it is at the heart of what this, this word justification truly means. Luther will write of justification this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into our heads continually. Maybe that is what we're doing right now, church family, but hopefully we can do it with a, with a velvet-covered hammer. Justification. Though the word sounds intimidating and theological and churchy, it's not really very difficult to understand this word. And we must all understand it. It is literally a word that came out of the courtroom of Paul's day. 
It is a judicial declaration made by God, a verdict reached by God and read from heaven over a sinner's life, a verdict of not guilty and fully righteous. Justification happens the moment any person, any person says, I'm a sinner. God is holy. I am not. I can never pay for the sin in my life myself. I add new sins all the time. I can't undo what I am by any amount of being a good rule keeper. I renounce any trust in me or what I can do, and I throw my whole self in saving faith upon Jesus and what he did for me on the cross. The sinless one died the death I should have died. He died for sinless, sinful me. And in that moment, church family, brothers and sisters have expressed faith in Jesus alone. God says, justified. Now, does this brand new Christian change in some radical way in that moment of confessing Jesus as Savior? Well, sometimes, instantly, old sinful ways are rejected and never returned to when a person confesses faith in, in Christ. But most often, change comes more slowly as the new Christian grows in their relationship with Jesus, experiencing the work of God's Spirit, and spends time in God's Word. And yet, at the moment of justification, God does declare something brand new about this new Christian. They are no longer buried under a sin debt they can never pay off but are released from that debt and made fully righteous in God's sight. It's a legal declaration, infinitely more binding than any earthly court ruling because it's made by God himself. Justified. Oh, to hear those words from God. Now, to illustrate this, weddings will sometimes take place out here in this meadow that we're gathered in. A bride and a groom stands with a pastor and a gathering of family and friends. And near the end of the ceremony, the pastor makes a legal declaration. He says, by the authority given to me as a minister of the gospel and in accordance with the laws of this state, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Now, just moments before that, the couple had been an engaged couple. Now they are husband and wife. They are legally married. Now, nothing inside either of them has changed as the pastor makes this declaration. But their, their place, their position, their standing has changed dramatically before God, before the state, before their family and friends, and before each other. The result of that, that three-second declaration by the pastor changed everything. And that declaration will have lifelong implications for both husband and wife. They now embark on a journey of growing ever more fully into what was legally declared. And they will not stop growing and maturing and learning what being a husband and being a wife means for the rest of their lives. This is also true of God's justification of us. By a divine declaration rooted in his love and grace, God issues a verdict of not guilty, fully righteous, 
to anyone who expresses genuine repentance and saving faith in Jesus alone. No works, no rule keeping, no self-generated righteous conduct, just Jesus. Verse 16 again, the first line. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. And the last line of this verse, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. When we as sinners are justified, our sin debt is paid for by Jesus' death. Our guilt record before God is wiped clean. And if that was all that justified meant, well, man, that would be enough, wouldn't it? But, but justification also means that God applies the righteousness of Jesus, the sinless standing of Jesus to our lives. God legally assigns Jesus' righteousness to us. He supernaturally transfers the sinless life of Jesus to the sinner's life so that the sinner is declared righteous in standing before God, even as Jesus is righteous. Now that's 2 Corinthians 5.21 there on your note page, isn't it? For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And by doing that, through this legal declaration of justification, God from that moment of our confession of Jesus on, from that moment on, God sees us as if we are clothed in the righteous sinlessness of Jesus. It's it is absolutely the greatest need in the life of any person to be justified before holy God, declared not guilty and fully righteous. Because if we're not, then, then we stand before God clothed in our own unrighteousness, which the Bible says is like filthy rags. In God's sight. Isaiah 64, 6. By justifying us in Jesus, apart from any work that we do, God elevates us to a place of full acceptance and unspeakable privilege in his presence forever. It is absolutely unfathomable and totally glorious what God does for us in this thing called justification. Now, Galatians 2.16 is certainly not the only place where we read about this glorious truth. In fact, when the blinders of the true gospel fell from Martin Luther's eyes and, and, and the, the other Bible book that ignited the faith fires within him besides Galatians was Romans. And in the middle of your note page, you're going to see Romans chapter 3 verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, meaning it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or rich or poor, educated or untrained, young or old, a man or a woman or a young person. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Verse 27, where then is boasting? Why, it's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. Faith alone. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. As we noted there in the last part of that definition paragraph that we read earlier, because a sinner's justification rests 100% on the merits of what Jesus has done and 0% on what the sinner does or does not do, there is no boasting, but only eternal gratitude from the sinner to God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And how could we leave out Romans 5.1? Luther couldn't. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. No sin stands between us, separating us from God, because Jesus died for it all and rose triumphant over it all. Again, church family, we could never ever receive anything more valuable or precious than to hear from holy God, you dear ones stand justified before me. But as Paul makes very clear in Galatians 2.16 and these other places, justification is granted to us by God, not because we worked hard to attain it or we did certain meritorious deeds or didn't do those bad things. By what means do we gain justification? By faith. By sola fide. By faith alone. Why? Because without it, without faith, it is impossible to be justified. That was the other main truth Paul does not want us to miss in verse 16. No one can read verse 16 and not get this. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times Paul declares that salvation is only through faith in Jesus and never ever by working for it. He drives a stake through the very heart of all claims that salvation is through belief in Jesus Christ plus something else. Verse 16 is as forceful and unequivocal a statement of the doctrine of salvation by faith alone in Jesus alone that can be found anywhere in Scripture. Luther and the Reformers, they got it. They knew that salvation apart from faith in Jesus wasn't just unlikely or difficult or or hard it was impossible as hebrews 11:6 says without faith it is impossible to please god the term faith means trust and when we take that word into the context of the bible and christianity we emerge with another expanded definition which you see there on your note page Allow me to read it for us. Faith. 
Faith is a supernatural reliance upon God, trusting Him completely for who He is in His person, for what He has said in His word, and for what He has done for the sinner through His Son, Jesus. Biblical faith reflects the unshakable conviction that every promise God has ever made, He will keep. Real faith involves the whole person, mind, emotions, and will. The mind embraces by faith the gospel's content, that Jesus alone saves sinners. The heart affirms by faith that salvation through Jesus is applicable to one's own sin-dead soul, and the will responds with full trust in the person of Jesus as the only hope for eternal life. Yet even in this, true saving faith comes to us as a gift from God. It's not something we supply, thus ensuring that all the credit and all the glory for our salvation goes to the Father and Son alone. So when we talk about faith as a Christian, we're talking about having a saving trust in the person of Jesus. To say it another way, we trust God with our present and our future, having put our faith in what he has accomplished on our behalf in the past through Jesus. We're placing our trust in every promise that God, who cannot lie, by the way, every promise that he makes in his word. We are believing that God will save us from the just penalty of our sin and an eternity separated from him in hell because he sent his son to pay our sin penalty for us. He promised he would do that, and we believe that he did. Our faith has that goal, our salvation. And, fellow Christian, our faith will not be disappointed. The Apostle Peter says precisely that there at the bottom of your note page, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. How does it read? Though you have not seen him, that is Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Someone might ask, well, how do I have saving faith? That's a great question. In the middle part of that definition that we just read, we get the answer to the question. Real faith involves the whole person, mind, emotions, and will. First, the mind embraces by faith the gospel's content, that Jesus alone saves sinners. The content has to be correct. Someone who puts their faith sincerely in the wrong information is going to be sincere, but they're going to be sincerely wrong. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. See, that's the right content that we put our faith into. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him, that is in Jesus, we have a redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's the right content. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. See, that's the right content. Our minds embrace by faith 
the gospel's content. But right content alone does not save. Even Satan knows intellectually the true gospel's content. In fact, he he knows it better than any of us, and he knows that it's 100% true. Yet he hates the true gospel with every fiber of his being. The mind by faith embraces the content as true. My sin, my sin, put Jesus on the cross. Not somebody else's sin, mine. And then the next part of the definition says, the heart affirms by faith that salvation through Jesus is applicable to one's own sin-dead soul. Saving faith personalizes the truth of the gospel. It says, these truths apply to me. These are relevant for me. This will work for me. God loves me. Jesus gave himself for me. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Because he loves me. There is a personal, emotional connection with the promise of salvation. And then the will responds with full trust, full faith in the person of Jesus as the only hope of forgiveness and eternal life. Here, saving faith means we throw our whole weight upon the claims of the true gospel. We hold nothing back, just like the reformers did, burning at the stake for their faith in Jesus alone sometimes. I can say that I trust this chair to hold me up. I have faith in this chair. I declare it to all of you who are here today. But those are just words. Until I do what with this chair? Until I sit in the chair. Just words until by an act of my will, I sit in the chair and I trust it to hold me. That is what we do with Jesus. We, with our will, place our whole being, past, present, and future, all that we are, into him. We trust him to hold us, to save us, to make us clean and righteous and justified before holy God. And yet, as we believe all of that, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 at the bottom of your note page reminds us that even the faith that we exercise in a Jesus direction, <laughs> that does not come from us. It also comes from God. For it is by grace, sola gratia, that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. The faith to believe Jesus as our one and only Savior is not something we come up with, not something that we produce. It is the gift of God, says verse 8. And then verse 9 says, not by works, so that no one can boast. Saving faith is a gift given to us from God. It's the Father's gift of faith to us. To ensure that all the glory for our salvation goes to the Father and the Son. No boasting by us, just amazing thanks and praise to the one who has done it all. That's amazing. 500 years ago this month, brave men and women rescued sola fide, faith alone, from the wreck and ruin of Jesus plus stuff I do saves me. 
from the works-based lies of religion and Satan. Sola fide, faith alone. Yet having peeled back the layers today on justification through faith in Jesus alone like we've done, you know what, church, I still find myself wanting to settle down into a very simple little Sunday school acrostic that says it all. F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all, I trust Him. That's what faith means. Forsaking all, I trust Him. Sola fide. Let's pray together. Forsaking all, we trust you, Jesus. We thank you for taking our sin to the cross, not because you owed your father anything or had any sin debt to pay for, but because we owed your father everything and had every sin, sins beyond counting to pay for and never could do that. Thank you, Jesus for dying in our place. And thank you, Father, for applying your Son's righteous life to ours, so that when you look at us, you see him. It is too good to be true, but it's true. And thank you, Heavenly Father, for supplying the faith that we need to believe in Jesus, so that all glory goes to you alone. Thank you for recovering sola fide and giving it to us. For it is in saving faith that we would say with Peter, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, though we have not seen Jesus, we love him. And even though we do not see him now, we believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for we are receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And we say, Amen and Amen.